Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. Thank you, Steve. We have a fantastic, fantastic guest here, Dr. Anna Yusum, and she is one of my dear, dear, dear friends, uh, someone with the most wonderful heart, and I am going to be talking a lot about her most recently published book called Fulfilled. In fact, I had such an amazing experience reading this book and was sailing out to Sag Harbor and then sailing back from Sag Harbor. And so if you could picture me sitting on this beautiful sailboat reading a book all about being fulfilled with my pen and paper and writing and taking notes, um, it was really one of the most wonderful experiences that I have ever had. And with that is part of the reason why I wanted to make sure that we had Anna here today. Um, Just to give you a little background, uh, Dr. Anna Yusum is a graduate of Stanford University, as well as the Yale School of Medicine. She's a psychiatrist in private practice here in New York City, and you've worked with thousands of patients, working with both individuals um, as well as couples to help them lead a happier, more meaningful life. Um, She's also traveled and worked in over 50 countries and presented at numerous national and international medical conferences. In fact, something that I think is really interesting, um, a fun fact, is that you went and went zip lining in Hawaii. But but what I have to really just wrap my mind around is that you went zip lining upside down. Tell me more about that because zip lining <laughs> to me is frightening enough. I, I somehow was talked into it by my children. But trust me, I was right side up and I was hanging on. But upside down, I didn't even know you could do that. <laughs> Nor did I. And it was actually my first time. And for that experience, there were nine different zip lines that we were going through. And every time we were told to try something different. And at the very end, I thought, what would the world look like upside down? And so I thought, you know what, we'll try. I seem pretty sturdy up here. I didn't end up falling off. And the world looks very interesting upside down. I can only imagine. Well, I think that that's a great segue into your book because your book is helping us to look at the world in our lives a little a little differently. And if you don't mind, I would love to um, you know just ask you what made you decide to to write fulfilled. I know that this has been your life's mission. You've worked in this area so long, but but what was the impetus that really you know struck you to to write this book? Yeah. And so, you know, I was going down my path and it was a path that you described in introducing me. It was a pretty traditional Western medical education going through college, through my psychiatry residency training. And then at some point, my life hit what I call a dark night of the soul. Things just weren't working out. And it was a coalescence of numerous factors. First, 
uh, relationship I had wasn't working out. So I felt heartbroken. I felt like, you know, I don't know why I keep drawing in these men with whom things just aren't, you know, amounting to the kind of relationship I hope. And at the same time, academically and from a professional standpoint, I felt unhappy. I had a difficult boss at the time. So all of this together plunged me into this kind of deep darkness. And here I was with this psychiatrist from these schools and with all these healing tools under my belt. And I felt unable to heal even myself. And I thought, well, this is a problem. If I'm going to be doing this as my life's work, Mm -hmm. I better figure out how to heal myself because how am I going to heal others if I can't even heal me? And that's when I started looking outside the medical model because I felt like here I am with all these tools, but the tools are failing me. And I started looking at more spiritual traditions, spiritual traditions, including Kabbalah and going to ashrams in India and studying with some of the gurus there to understand their philosophy and learning about shamanic practices in South Africa and South America and speaking with numerous leaders from a medical standpoint and psychological standpoint, but also from a spiritual standpoint, which is often overlooked in Western medical training. And in the course of this journey, my own darkness started to lift. And then eventually I started integrating this work into my work with patients. Mm -hmm. And that's how this book was ultimately written. In the book, you, you really bear your soul. And I give you, um, I, I want to thank you for that. I really want to thank you for that because I know many of the women who are listening to this podcast have shared that journey of being with men who are not emotionally available, men who are not not able really to be there and, and fulfill their needs and, and truly be present. And it sounds like you had your own journey too of dealing with that and can you share more about that and how you were able to start to heal yourself absolutely right so this relationship which was one of my stepping stones into this dark night of the soul part of it was what I realized was a pattern in my life I kept drawing in these men that were somehow emotionally unavailable meaning that they could be there and pursue me and seem to really want a relationship but really when it came down to it they somehow weren't ready their hearts weren't open to love they didn't they weren't able to didn't want that there was a lot of different reasons but the common denominator was they all on some level were emotionally unavailable and it was only when I started studying more spiritual principles and learned about this mirror principle that I started recognizing what was going on the mirror principle states that we don't draw into our lives that which we want we draw into our lives that which we are I was drawing in emotionally unavailable men because there is a part of me that was emotionally unavailable and it was only by looking at myself and asking what part of me may not be ready for a relationship what part of my heart is closed to love and in what way am I unable to give what I hope to get back from a relationship and really starting to do the work on myself and transforming myself that's what ultimately enabled me to draw in a very different kind of man and we were married who you know well actually and we were married about a year ago which I'm I, I love that you're here and that you're able to share the happy story that this work really does does have a profound impact and that there is a happily ever after and you know jesse is just such a phenomenal phenomenal guy can you share a little bit more about the different exercises because 
what I really enjoyed most about your book is, yes, it, it taught you the the different thoughts and the mirror process, but it also gave you concrete things to do. And and I know for me, I'm a doer, kind of like, well, well, show me what to do. How do I, how do I work through that? And I know many of the women who are listening to this podcast are, are just like that of, okay, this sounds great. I, I may emotionally be unavailable and that's why I'm mirroring and, and pulling some of these men into my life. What are some of those those tools that women can work through to start to find that nugget uh, that might not be fully ready in themselves? Absolutely, yes. And I think it's first, just like you said, to recognize this pattern. For me, finding a husband or finding someone with whom I could actually be happy in a relationship was what I call one of my soul corrections. And our soul corrections are those things that our souls have essentially come into this world to correct. It's those challenges that come up over and over and over in our lives, often much to our chagrin and dismay and despite our best efforts to change them. And so for me, finding a husband was very much that, which is why I got married at the ripe old age of 39, which, you know, not too old, but certainly not too young either. And for other people, they have all sorts of other soul corrections. And so I encourage people to first ask themselves, what is your soul correction? And if indeed it is similar to myself, drawing in the wrong kind of person, to really look at yourself and ask, how are the people that I'm drawing in a reflection of me in some way? What qualities in them is actually a mirror of what I need to change and transform? And then it's the question of how do I go about transforming that? So how do you transform the key things that could be habitual responses that you've had all your life? Or moreover, how do you go about transforming implicit core beliefs that really are core to your identity? This is really one of the key things in the book. And one way to do so is this, um, what I call the Kabbalistic proactive formula, which is something that I learned from the Kabbalah Center, and it's a multi-step process. It's realizing those places in our life where despite things being somewhat self-destructive and not good for us, we keep doing it again and again and again. For instance, we could be dating somebody and we see the red flags, we see them at the beginning, but yet we convince ourselves it's going to be different this time, it's going to be different this time. But it's that same lyrical refrain that we've sung to ourselves over and over. The point at which we can actually set those boundaries and realize, no, you know what? I did it again. This time I'm going to do something different. I'm going to let this go. And I'm going to, which is, when you set a boundary like that, you're sending a really strong symbol signal to the universe saying, I'm done with this pattern. I'm going to do this differently. You might get tested a few more times. You might be sent those same guys a few more times. But if you keep saying no, 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 then and at the same time working on yourself, asking, why did I get sent this person? What do I need to transform in myself? Eventually, you're going to be sent somebody different. If you want a different outcome, you need to shift something in yourself. Mm-hmm. It's what Einstein would often say. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over, but expecting a different response. You want to get something different from the universe, change yourself. I want to go to your book, if you don't mind. Um, a, a lovely woman who you worked with, um, Laharia. Lahari, I, I want to make sure I'm writing, saying it, it correctly. Um, 
definitely had a fear of being alone. And the background is is that she's from Ghana and that many times women were married in their early 20s with, with children. And she herself couldn't find her soulmate. And it was really interesting because you went on sharing how she tended to draw very narcissistic men into her life and that in her work with you um, had aha, a real aha in her life that her father had always put the needs of himself over the entire family, over her, and that she was really drawing in to her her father and was finding herself at the end of these relationships after she had invested so much that this was someone who was just never going to put her needs even parallel to their themselves, let alone above themselves at, at times. And you, you shared how she was able to, to work through that. This is something that we hear from so many women. How, how did she do that? And what was that journey like for her to be able to recognize that and then be able to attract men that, that would put her needs where at least on par with themselves? Absolutely, yes. And Lahari, she was a wonderful patient. She was a medical student, very bright, very beautiful, had everything going for her. And then this pattern kept ensuing over and over and over. And indeed, the reason she drew in these men was because there was something so comfortable and familiar about people who were a little narcissistic, a little self-centered, who she had to succumb to in a way and be secondary to. Why was it comfortable and familiar? Because her father was that, just like you said. And it wasn't even something we realized right away, because at first, as I work with patients, we see who is it that you're drawing in? What are the qualities of that person? Because we don't know exactly. Are you going to be drawing in someone like mom, someone like dad? Are you at the point where you're ready to draw in the right person? But this was the pattern. And oftentimes, if we find that something's repeating itself over and over, you know, if they say, if it's hysterical, and it creates a lot of emotions, if it's hysterical, it's historical. It goes back to your history in some way. So for Lahari, what she ultimately had to do was realize that just because something feels comfortable and familiar in her dating life doesn't mean it's good for her. And actually, it's the opposite. If something feels too comfortable and familiar, beware. Mm -hmm. Beware of what could happen because you're probably drawing in somebody who is going to invoke similar patterns. And that's the whole thing. Part of drawing in the right person often involves going against our nature, taking yourself out of your comfort zone, doing that which feels new and different and often scary, mm -hmm. and tolerating the feelings that that creates until a new pattern emerges with that person. I know you shared in the book um, how she ended up uh, meeting someone who she would have never really thought of as her soulmate who, when she became ready, realized almost like a new pair of glasses had been put on her of, oh my gosh, this is my soulmate, um, which I think is really po powerful of essentially being ready, being Absolutely. ready and putting yourself in a different situation, which, um, which she did. Absolutely. And that's the whole thing in drawing in that person. When people come to me looking for their soulmate, usually I have to make some lists lists of those things that you can't live with and certainly those things you can't live without. 
But sometimes those lists can be a little bit off because the qualities that need to be on things you can't live without, we need to move some qualities there to be kind and generous and open-hearted. That list has to be more stringent. And oftentimes those things that we can cling onto, like how tall a person has to be, how old they have to be, how um, much money they have to make, often those things, if you truly want your soulmate and someone with whom you can make a good life, sure, those things are important, but to really be more open to compromising the things that are external attributes Mm -hmm. and to be much more stringent about the internal attributes, the qualities of someone's heart and soul. And that's what Lahari ultimately did. That's amazing. And and I know that you also shared um, some really powerful pieces not only with her uh, for her her situation, but many of your other clients of harnessing your personal power. And you have four different areas that you talk about. And um, I'd love just to talk a little bit about all of them. And, and the first one is relinquishing that victim mentality. Secondly, having faith and giving and offering forgiveness. Three, rising above indecision. And three, uh, number four, owning your thoughts and your feelings. Um, So let's go to that first one, relinquishing that victim mentality. Um, So many women going through the divorce process, rightfully so, uh, feel like a victim. However, that's such a low form of energy. It's not an empowering form of energy. So how do you how do you move beyond that? Right, right. And people often do this and don't even realize they're doing this. And often this is age old habitual patterns of in a way blaming others for where you're finding yourself and seeing yourself as a victim of circumstances. Even though you can have sometimes feel empowered by the righteous indignation that comes from being a victim, that empowerment is usually short lived. And like you said, it's kind of at that low vibrational frequency. And it's not really compatible with true power because with victim mentality there's also a little bit of entitlement you believe that you're owed something by the world but the reality is no one's owed anything by the world none of us are and the point at which you can start taking responsibility for your life and not seeing yourself as a victim that's really where change begins now it's not to say that we're not saying here that your circumstances weren't objectively difficult Mm -hmm. or that in some ways you weren't hurt or that this wasn't truly challenging. Relinquishing victim mentality doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that what happened didn't happen. It really is more your attitude towards it and taking this passive victim stance and transforming it to, you know what, I'm gonna take responsibility for my role in this. And I'm going to be empowered to do that and move forward in my life. Mm -hmm. Whatever I contributed to this situation, I'm going to start being honest with myself about what I brought to the table Mm -hmm. start owning that and move on. That's powerful. And um, let's talk a little bit then about the the faith and forgiveness. Um, And you shared a wonderful story about Yolanda, who has had one of the most difficult backgrounds I think of of anyone that that I had really ever heard of but she had a very sharp wit calm demeanor and a a happiness almost an optimistic positive peace around her Um, and it comes from this area of faith and forgiveness can you tell us a little bit more about about Yolanda, but then also how she was able to use this tool to help her deal with the the difficult situations in her life. 
Absolutely, right. So Yolanda is one of those people you could read about in a book, and she actually came to me as a patient at one point, had everything that you could imagine under the sun happen to her. When she was young, she was raped, she was sexually abused, like a million other things happened to her as well. It's just so, so sad to hear this woman's story, but also to see the woman before me who is like this beautiful soul and so calm and so strong and so empowered on so many levels, so far beyond what most of us are able to even achieve. And then as I got to know her, I realized, what is it that gives her that? It was really her connection to something greater. She's like, you know, my pain doesn't define me. My connection to God defines me. I'm doing what I can in this world. I feel like for her, she turned to faith almost because it was just a part of her lexicon. That's how she grew up. And also, because if you don't have faith when all those things happen to you, what else do you have left? But it's her faith. It was the strongest source of power and strength for her. And it was just amazing. And she didn't harbor resentment. She didn't see herself as a victim. And if there's anyone who you could think rightly so could see themselves as a victim, it was Yolanda. Yeah. 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 And that's where, you know, the forgiveness comes in. Yeah. Forgiveness is also such a powerful thing. We often think, how can we possibly forgive this perpetrator of this? negative thing that they did to us, whether it be the husband we're divorcing or this abuser or anybody else who harmed us in some way. What we often don't realize is the person who benefits most from forgiveness isn't the person being forgiven. It's actually us Mm -hmm. because we don't have to harbor in our heart the anger, the resentment, and all the other negative feelings we may have been storing and carrying with us for so long. And you have a wonderful exercise um, and I encourage everyone to get the book but if you go to page 140 it's an exercise on the art of forgiveness and I love how you call it the art of, of forgiveness because it's it's not saying that that person is innocent it's it's not um, but it's helping you work through that opening your heart and releasing the hurt so that you yourself can truly heal Exactly, exactly. And that's the role of forgiveness. It really is about self-healing and about aligning yourself with a frequency of love as opposed to a frequency of pain and hatred. Mm -hmm. The third thing that you talk about, and, and I thought it was really interesting, is rising above indecision. And you have a... You have an interesting quote um, by Rabbi Noah Weinberg saying that people often avoid making decisions out of a fear of making a mistake. Actually, the failure to make decisions is one of life's biggest mistakes. Tell me more about that. Yes, it's such a powerful thing because I often have patients come to me stuck with indecision and trying to figure out which way to go. It's not something I can ever tell a patient, you need to go this way, except if it's very clear cut, they're in an abusive relationship, you need to leave, Mm -hmm. you know, but in most cases, it's not so clear cut. And Oftentimes, it's, you know, another quote that I really like in that regard is alternatives exclude. We fear closing one door. That's why we don't make decisions. We fear, you know, what would have happened? So we'd almost rather live with the possibility and potentiality of having both doors open rather than closing one of those doors, not realizing that actually through indecision, we're not really harnessing our power. We're not really living our life. And I've had patients come to me stuck often for years in indecisions over what career to pursue, whether to end an affair or stay married. And that's so much energy 
energy lost in this, you know, quest and in, you know, the inner struggle. These are some people's soul corrections. It's not that these people are weak or lazy, not nothing like that. It's actually very difficult. They're faced with decisions that are so core and essential to their very nature. And them eventually reconciling one way or the other what is right for them is really their way of harnessing their personal power. Mm-hmm. It's it's really, I've never thought about it um, in that way. And, and you gave one of the women that you worked with um, who highly respected Queen Elizabeth, um, you used a, a a question that I I thought was really powerful and it might even be a question that we can all use of what would Queen Elizabeth do in this situation and interestingly enough Veronica who you worked with said she never skipped a beat she would always say what that right answer would have been that answer that empowered her that answer that that was the the right decision for her but she herself Veronica couldn't couldn't answer that she needed to think of how queen elizabeth would would answer that and it might be something then for for each one of us of you know the for me it might be i I so respect wonder woman what would wonder woman you know do in this situation and all of a sudden (coughs) all of a sudden it becomes really clear of what wonder woman would do um how did that how did that help veronica yeah i think it's such an interesting case, you know, because this patient, Veronica, prior to seeing me, she'd gone to a psychic. And the psychic gave her such an interesting uh, reading that she, when she shared with me, I was just struck by how apt of a metaphor the psychic had used. The psychic told her that um, if you stay in this relationship, you're going to continue to be like a step stool to this man. He's going to walk all over you in many different ways. And you're going to be the step stool kind of holding him up a little bit. But if you're able to leave and harness your power in that way, your energy will be akin to that of Queen Elizabeth. So this is what the psychic told her. And she came to me and I was really just struck because this woman in her life had indeed had people walk all over her, starting with her mother, who was very outspoken and controlling. And and she married a man who was very similar in that regard. And she was kind of second fiddle to this man and his grandiosity. But when she was able to tap into her Queen Elizabeth side, she became this poised and articulate and strong and elegant woman. That was inside her all along and it did come through just in her everyday interactions, but she just wasn't aligned with that. Like that was almost like the voice of her soul, like her divine spark, her spirit. And somehow that has been replaced with seeing herself as the step stool to this powerful man. And so eventually she was able to align more with this Queen Elizabeth side by my asking her this very question, what would Queen Elizabeth do? And she started asking herself that question. And all of us within us have our own Queen Elizabeth, whatever that is, whoever we see as like our hero, our higher self, the best version of ourselves. You know, for a lot of people, it's Jesus or, you know, it could be God. What would Jesus do? What would Queen Elizabeth do? Whatever your person is, it's so powerful to ask and then align with whatever it is that they would do in a given situation. It's really powerful. And I I have to say that I've used that myself. And um, hopefully my dad's not listening. Um, but I, I actually used it with my dad. My dad called me with a, a very, very, very big question about what to do um, with a, a personal relationship. 
And it was a situation where I knew the right answer, but I couldn't give it. And so I was able to share with him. And I said, you know, what would John Wayne do? And for him, John Wayne is right up there. And he said, well, this is what John Wayne would do. And that was the answer. And all of a sudden, it became really clear to him. And I said, well, anytime you have a question, just think about what would John Wayne do? So thank you for for that tool, because it's that. so powerful in everyone's life. Um, you know, even for a friend who might be asking you, should they stay or should they go? Um, you know, whatever that might be, thinking about who is who is someone that they can really respect that what would they do? Absolutely. So, absolutely. That's beautiful. Yeah. The other thing you talk about, and this is the fourth tool, uh, as far as harnessing your personal power, you talk about owning your own <coughs> thoughts and feelings. And um, the Buddha said, you, you wrote in your book, you are what you think. All that you are arises from your thoughts. With your thoughts, you make your world. Yes. And so this really comes down to if we're going to harness our personal power, we can't do so without having some rain on our mind because it's our minds that create the emotions that could take us into places that make us want to escape, create anxiety for us, create depression for us, and then don't enable us to be present with what it is that we're really going to going through. And then it could lead us into all sorts of escapes through addictions, through drugs, through alcohol, through workaholism, through addictions to psychological things like status and power and fame, all ways of escaping a deep inner feeling of emptiness of our inability to tolerate whatever it is that we're feeling. And it all comes from your thoughts, you know, like at the root, often we avoid certain things and have certain key behaviors to really keep us from feeling certain emotions and keep us from thinking certain thoughts. You know, thoughts and emotions, they create each other. And the more that we can get a handle on our own minds and therefore on our own hearts, the more control we have over our lives. Mm -hmm. If we have control over our minds, nothing and nobody could ever get to us mm -hmm. unless we choose to let that be so. You, you also talk about some tools to help people work on this because yes. this is something and I, I'm sure many people have read or seen The Secret, um, but there's also a lot missing, a lot missing from there. And you you had recommended um, one of your your books um, to Alana, a client of yours called The Law of Divine Compensation on Work money and miracles. Can you tell me more about that and how that book really fills in the pieces where the secret and some of the previous works um, are missing? Absolutely, yes. So Alana was a patient of mine and a lot of patients come with all sorts of issues around money, understandably. You know, money is a currency of exchange in our society. Of course, people are gonna have whatever key conflicts they come in with, they're gonna project those onto their relationship with money. And for Alana, that was overspending. Overspending and shopahol, shopaholicism, I guess. And so whenever she felt empty inside, whenever she felt anxious, whenever she felt a difficult feeling that she was unable to deal with in a given time, she would turn to shopping. And she would go online or go to Macy's or go to Saks and buy herself 
nice shoes or a pretty dress. And temporarily, that would fill the void. Mm -hmm. And for the next few hours, she'd like be able to have a sigh of relief. The anxiety would be gone. And then her husband would come home and see what had happened. And then this is something that started causing a lot of issues in their marriage. Because Alana and her husband, Hank, had actually very different stories around money. For Alana, there was always a little bit of a dearth of money in her family. And she had a little bit of the fake it till you make it. So make sure that you look the part and then you're actually going to believe that you belong. But for Hank, he also came from a family where there wasn't a lot of money and he worked so, so hard to create the security and stability that he and Alana would need in life. And so as the hard work he was doing was being undermined by Alana shopping, he would get enraged and stressed and it would create a lot of stress in their relationship. And so with Alana, we started working around the energy behind money, realizing it really doesn't have to do with the money. You're just projecting your own key conflicts onto the shopping. How can we enable you to fill your voids in other ways? Like by starting to control your thoughts more, by having more control over the emotions that arise, like the anxiety and depression that precede your shopping binges. Mm -hmm. And it actually was very interesting because they were both very spiritual people, Alana and Hank, and they started doing the law of attraction. They started using more spiritual principles and using your thoughts to you know, manifest. Because the other thing about thoughts is before you can manifest something in your life, you first have to think it and see it. So they started doing things with visualization. They started doing things with setting forth goals and creating vision boards. And they were both very powerful. The things that they thought of and created actually manifested. And this started changing a lot of their habits and actually made them more spiritual as a consequence of this. And it's a happy story, which is really wonderful too. And One of the things we do hear a lot of women saying is that spending is the one way where they have comfort. Um, Or it might be on the other shoe of seeing their husband's spending and that making them feel vulnerable or scared or worried about their security. It was shocking to us in the survey that we did how many women cited as one of the top reasons they decided to leave their marriage was the spending of their husband. And I I say, wouldn't it have been amazing if someone like you had been able to be in their life to hold up that mirror and look at it's not just the spending, but what's, you know, what's really behind it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people's spending patterns. Yes, money is kind of the object through which they spend, but it's all about values and what that money represents. It could be status, security, comfort, luxury, um, whatever it is, filling some sort of void if they didn't have money before and needing that money to reassure themselves that we're okay, we're safe, we're successful. And if couples have similar stories around money, and if those stories work, beautiful. But oftentimes, there'll be different values. Mm-hmm. There'll be conflicting values that then can create a lot of conflict in the relationship and will lead people to divorce, to couples therapy, and all sorts of other things. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you bring that up because this show is really all about money financially ever after. Um for, for those couples who have very different money stories and very different values of how they think about money, spend about spend money, save money, 
what are some of the best ways that they can work through that? And I, I can't believe that we've already gone through so much time. Um, but maybe in the next two or three minutes, if you could do that. And then I want to make sure, too, that all of our listeners can find out how they can contact you as well. Yeah, yeah. So the stories around money, indeed, people come to me for couples therapy often with those very stories, differences in that. And I think the key thing is for people to start articulating those stories and understanding where they come from, because often couples don't even realize it. What they see is the end product. This person spent this much money and didn't tell me, or they spent this much and they should have spent this much. How could they do that? That was so heartless and thoughtless and selfish or whatever it is. But the reality is, it wasn't any of those things. There's a miscommunication there. There is two different stories that somehow didn't get discussed and reconciled. So what I try to do when couples do come with those issues is really to put their stories into words Mm -hmm. and understand, you know, did you come from a family where money was used as a way of showing love, of showing affection, of creating security, of exerting control, or of the millions of other things that money can serve as? Because it's just an energy, you know? Ultimately, money used to be gold coins, and then it was paper, and now it's really just this electric currency, money, like a you know electronic currency. Yeah, yeah. yeah money in and of itself, it's really just a symbol for what it is that we use with the money. It's just a tool. So, mm-hmm. and... It's also for people who have very different philosophies, it's figuring out what's a philosophy, if you wanna be married to this person, what's a philosophy we can agree upon? What's like the lowest common denominator that we can come to so that both of you could be happy and both of you could respect each other's stories? Mm -hmm. Can we get to a place where both of you can speak your truth and still feel as though this, you know, is something that could be compatible with a loving relationship and the financial picture that you want of your life. You know, it's really interesting that you share that because money is so much a part of, of any marriage. And something that I really want to share with our listeners is that just because it looks like you have money figured out, doesn't mean you do and what I'll share is kind of a personal story but um, when Samantha was born um, Michael and I kind of had a coming to head because of all the stress so Sebastian at that time um, was in his what we call terrible threes I didn't know terrible twos went on to terrible threes but they do just so everybody knows that can that can actually continue and then Samantha was born and and I had the bright idea of let's get a puppy too Um, obviously it must have been a brain fog during my my pregnancy Um, but we were having some really hard difficult times together as a couple and we just celebrated 15 years we're very happy but I look back to then and one of the biggest challenges we had was how we deal with money and we went to a couples therapist um and i wish we had known you this was uh eight years ago and i shared with her an incident when we went to starbucks and i had gotten the small crappy coffee that they had and he had gotten the latte vente foofy 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 that cost about five times mine And we had this huge fight about, I cannot believe that you are spending that much money on that foofy coffee. And the therapist looked at me and said, why are you having a problem with that? Can you you tell me more about that? 
And, you know, so long story made very short. What we realized is that it, it was not about the coffee. It was the fact that I didn't feel financially secure. And so what we had to do together was find what is going to be that that story, that that playbook that's going to work for our marriage. And what we realized is that for me, he can spend his money on anything he wants as long as we hit our savings goal every single year. And from that moment of realizing, oh my gosh, you're right. If, if I am hitting our savings target, then I could care less on what he's spending his money on. It's not gonna impact me. I'm not gonna feel like a victim. I'm not gonna feel like in any way that um, I'm being you know, ill-treated by what he spends his money on. And that was one of the most powerful moments of our marriage. And from a place where I'll be honest, our marriage was really struggling to us celebrating 15 years and have these two amazing kids and unbelievable life with the most wonderful man I could have ever, ever imagined to be with. Um, We just need to figure out how we were going to make it work and what was going to make me feel really safe and secure and what was going to let him feel safe and secure too and and happy. Um, So I I can't stress enough of how important and powerful it is to work through through, you know, with a third party about your different money stories, because we would have never I would have never seen that I would have really still thought it was about the the coffee, the foofy coffee. Um, And, you know, we may not have been, you know, standing here. So I think that's really powerful. It's so beautiful. It's what you um, describe in that our Everything about money and our feelings about it has nothing to do with the money. It has everything to do with values, with security, with for your husband, whether um, the foofy coffee meant luxury or freedom Mm -hmm. or being able to somehow enjoy life in a different way and how that balances with the need for security for both of you guys. And then finding that common denominator where things work. So it's so beautiful that you were able to do that and reconcile that. Well, Anna, I can't thank you enough for being here, for taking your time. I know we went over a little bit, but only because... To be honest, I could be talking to you for another two hours. I I so enjoyed your book, and I, I so appreciate. And thank you again for, for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Stacey. It was a pleasure. And Stacey, how do our listeners get a hold of you? Perfect. So you can reach out via email um, or phone. Uh, so the phone number is 212-374-9008. Or you can email Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Our website has some great information, too, um, in particular about our second opinion program. If you're ever helping for a second opinion about your finances, just want a, an outside look, um, please let us know. In fact, the Wall Street Journal did a survey. 81% of individuals would appreciate a second opinion about their finances. And so whether that's looking at your looking at your financial picture or it's looking at your actual portfolio, um, we're happy to help with that. And even more importantly, um, Anna, can you give us some information of how our listeners can find out more about about your work, about 
also fulfilled and how they might be able to contact you to possibly work with you directly? Sure, sure. So all of that could be done on my website, which is www.annayusum.com, which is A-N-N-A-Y as in yoga, U-S as in Sam, I-M as in Mary. And Fulfilled is available on the website, but also on Amazon and anywhere that books are sold. Yep. So www.annayusum.com. So please visit that. As uh, as Anna said, you can definitely go on uh, the website, uh, Amazon, to get her book. It is a very, very lovely, easy read. And as I said, I was able to read it sailing out to Sag Harbor and then on the sail back. And the only thing I have to tell you is just make sure you have your pen and paper ready because there's a lot of great exercises. And you can see that I've incorporated a lot of these exercises into my life already. And it's been very, very powerful and, and helpful. So thank you so much for being here thank today. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you. Thank you.